Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, I hope you're staying happy, and I hope that you're staying safe. I have a fascinating guest for you today. His name is Bill King. He is a three-time Juno Award nominee. He served as music director for loads of people that you've heard of, like, oh, I don't know, Janis Joplin, Linda Ronstadt, the Pointer Sisters, Martha Reeves, the list goes on. He is a renowned musician, a radio host, and now he's the author of Coming Through the 60s, an American American Rock and Road Story. And get this, it's his second book release in the last year, following his book last year, Talk, Conversations in All Keys, which was a collection of interviews that King did with everyone from Oscar Peterson and Jeff Healy to Bruce Colburn and Buffy St. Marie. In this interview, we're going to talk about his life in the 1960s. Now, have you ever wondered what it was like to hang out in Greenwich Village in 1968? Or maybe pop Janis Joplin's clutch? And no, that is not a euphemism for anything. Get your mind out of the gutter. Bill King was there, and he's able to talk all about it in this interview. It's fascinating stuff. We began, as all interviews these days do, by talking about the pandemic and how it's affected him. Two books in one year. So are you naturally prolific or did the pandemic play a part in this somehow? Uh, you know, uh, the first book, uh, Talk, you know, those interviews came over uh, several years, going back 30-something years. So I had them in a collection of interviews. And then when I started putting them together and I started to divide them up because I have uh, uh, about 60, 70 that are, are top-line uh, of the great American artist, right? right? The Tony Bennett's, the Harry Connick's, the Went Marcellus, and, and I started separating. And then also had the business side of Canadian music, the uh, Duff Romans, uh, the Chum people, the Roger Ashby's. And I just started separating. And then I went down the middle and I said, how about the artist? And I looked and I had 72 prime Canadian artists. And I says, all right, let's just do book one. And I started organizing book one probably in December and finished it by February, brought it out in March, and it was, what could you do? I mean, we were <laughs> going to have a book club, you know, just had to do it all social media. Yeah. The second one, I started, I thought, well, maybe I'll get into the second book because I've been working on the second one, the industry. And everybody kept saying, but you should write that memoir now. And then I started looking at it, and I had it broadly written, going for between birth and about 1990 and i said no i just want to focus up to the when we came to canada right just stay there because i think there's uh i think there's a, a good story there of you know just being a kid you know yeah. chasing a dream so i left it at that and then i sat there for eight months and just wrote and then i had some collected stories and i pieced them all together but there was a lot of stuff that hadn't been written so it was mm -hmm. just putting it all together and then I went to my friend, my writer friend, Susan Glickman, and she's a poet and everything. And I says, you know, could you take a look at this? And I hand her two binders and she almost yes. fainted. She's got to go work on this. <laughs> so she gave me sort of an outline and said, this is what you want to do. And I just followed her thing and um, just, you know, thought about it and, and worked my way through it. Well, we'll get to the new book uh, in just a second. It's called Coming yeah. Through the 60s, an American Rock and Roll uh, Road Story. But I wanted to talk about talk, uh, conversations in all keys. You say about that book, I hope these conversations are a blueprint for any aspiring musician or a wellspring of motivation. Um, what lessons do you think that musicians could take away from this book? 
I think there's a common thread between all of them uh, that you're young one you're young one time mm-hmm. you get young once, and then there's something that that spark, and in the book, uh, you know, even I may start to start later on in a person's life. Like I just I just don't go and say let's start from the beginning. Right. I want to work myself back. I will we'll hear all the things you've been doing and the things that you want to talk about, but I'm always. Uh, interesting. It doesn't matter who the artist is in the interview. I'm interested in that initial spark. What was mm-hmm. it? You know, uh, you know. When I was talking to Roger Ashby, it was just being home because the radio was on all the time, and he had a microphone, <laughs> right? So he couldn't get away from the microphone, right? Uh, so others couldn't get away from standing in front of the TV and impersonating something. Others were just. I liked the way the bass felt. I knew, I knew immediately when I seen somebody play an electric bass that I had to play the electric right. bass. Uh, another would be like, as soon as I hit the piano, it was like an orchestra to it. It was a symphony in my life and I couldn't stop playing. So it's, it's those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Well, then let's go back a little bit in your life. Okay. Oscar Peterson looms large in your story uh, in coming through the 60s. Um, what did his music uh, mean to you? Why was it so potent that at 16 you came from uh, Jefferson, Indiana to Toronto to study with him? It was just that, you know, up until then I had been a, a classically trained musician mm-hmm. and my studies were all in the academy and, and eventually in a short time the conservatory. You're listening to my interview with Bill King, author of Coming Through the 60s, an American rock and road story available wherever you buy fine books. It was uh, it was my dad that introduced jazz into the house, right? And so when I heard that, I heard something something so totally different, but it was the it was that blend of blue, the blue notes that went by. And, and then of course the technique, I have the dazzling technique like a concert pianist, the rhythm, the time, the flow to it. And it, it just hit me like, wow, how do you do that? That is, I thought I thought it was just the coolest thing I'd ever heard. Mm-hmm. And so when I, we had uh, been subscribing to Downbeat Magazine for about a year, and there was an advertising that come up that said you could win a scholarship to study with Oscar Peterson. And I went, this is, this is out there. So I went to my trio, my brother and my friend, and we recorded a couple tunes and sent it off. And I got this half scholarship. So the half scholarship was only the scholarship. I, I, I only think they charged about three or 400 bucks to come and study. So I'd already saved $700 from playing these little minor gigs. So I had the money to come. And then we got with, uh, with our church, we found a, the same church in Toronto and found a family I could stay with and pay them money. And so it, it, it was like uh, electrifying for a kid. And I guess that you always knew that you'd be a musician of some sort, whether or not professional, I don't know. But um, this was a huge step. I mean, you're studying with one of the legends of the game at that point. Um, how much impact did that make on your outlook as to what would happen in your life after that? You know, I think it was just, it just reaffirmed that people made a living uh, playing music. Mm-hmm. And I, I I never thought <clears throat> in my entire life, uh, no matter how down I would be or anything like that about giving up. Right. Uh, maybe I should have at some point, maybe should have <laughs> thought about something a little stable, but I never, it never crossed my mind. 
You know, I mean, I went, okay, where's, what am I going to do next? Oh, here's an opportunity over here. Well, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go learn this to along with the music. Right. So I think it was just the fact that, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in your head, when you're young and you're playing uh, Beethoven or you're playing something of Ellington and stuff, the, the way music gets into your system, uh, it, it overtakes you and, and, and you feel the goodness of what music is. And so I think you, you always feel like you have this partner throughout life that <clears throat> no matter how difficult things are, you can always go back to your best friend. Now, your best, best friend can be unruly at times and not be accommodating, <laughs> but there's the point it will look after you. you know? Well, I get the sense that uh, your father, who was the man who introduced you to jazz music, I think in a mm -hmm. lot of ways, uh, maybe he paid for the downbeat subscription that was coming into the house. Not a lot of households probably had that coming in at the time, uh, but he was a complex person. He had PTSD yeah. after World War II. You had kind of a fraught relationship with him. Was music the thing that bound you, that uh, gave you some kind of common ground that you could uh, uh, relate to one another on? Yeah, it was it, it, more than, it was part refuge and it was part uh, that, a place we could communicate. Mm. Because uh, the reason I included this in the book, I could have just avoided talking about this and, and, and not get to what I really wanted to talk about too, was that common thing where families, especially after World War II, there was, when, when, when the soldiers came home, uh, they were called shell shocked yeah. and they were supposed to just, you know, you just, you just buck up and take it. Right. Just, just, and there was no way to explain that. Right. And I lived in a house where you could hardly walk through the house without him exploding and it would turn violent. Mm -hmm. And then somewhere along the line, one of his guitar friends at Colgate's where he worked at said, uh, you know, listen to this Oscar Peterson thing, listen to this. And he got listened to all the guitar players because he sort of picked away at guitar and played in sort of menstrual shows and stuff when he was a kid, a teenager, that all of a sudden he kind of got following all these, all the music. And then when it was on TV, he was always telling me, well, that's so-and-so playing with so-and-so in that band. That's so-and-so there. And I think there was, it, it made him happy. There was the happiness. And, you know, let, let me, I, I will say this to the end of his life. Uh, there was nothing greater than the joy of music. Mm -hmm. And so when he saw, when he saw the photos and the interviews I was doing with the Tony Bennett or, uh, or, or any of the great guitar yeah. players, thing like this, he lost it. He was, he was just over. So what'd you say? So what was he like? Right? <laughs> so he had the mad, he had the same mad curiosity as the kid did. Right. So that was the thing that sort of through all the troubles, the political stuff, the craziness and through his health, health issues, the thread that went right through the end was that line of music, right? Mm -hmm. and as my world grew beyond just being a uh, backup player or something like that into media and journalism, into photography and all these things, his world expanded and our friendship expanded. I asked my mother one time, I said, man, what was wrong with you folks? <laughs> and she said, we had no clue what we were doing. She says, I understand this, you know, we're coming back out of World War II and we're dropped in this place where I know nothing about in an area and we got to fend for ourselves. You know, we understood what went on for the four, four years because they dated, they courted and it was a long distance romance, I guess, for a couple of years. And he, she said, then when you dropped in, we knew nothing about raising kids. Mm. 
or going into thing, and then I'm dealing with this him. You know, I don't know what's what's going to happen with him, right? You know, you know, with his emotional things. So she kind of, and I said, you know, some I carry no grudges. I said, I, I, I you, you absolutely uh, addressed it properly, because now you, me and you are on the same level of understanding that I can understand you as somebody the same age as me now, you know, or raising kids. The book features lots of bold-faced names, and we'll get to some of those uh, in a little while. But it's not just a celebrity tell-all kind of book. This really paints a picture of a time and a place being uh, a young person when there was a lot going on, Vietnam and and, uh, the burgeoning rock scenes, Haight-Ashbury, Greenwich Village, all that stuff. Um, You grew your hair. You hit the road. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what those days were like as you were hitchhiking across the country, you're playing gigs along the way, you're meeting interesting people, but it's such a singular time in American history uh, that that it's uh, interesting to hear a sort of an eyewitness account of it. You know, and that's why I wrote the book as an eyewitness account. I didn't write it as a celebrity kiss butt, uh, uh, you know, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I wrote this, uh, in many ways, I feel like I'm more fortunate because I wasn't like the guy playing with all the greats all the time and in this uh, vacuum that just traveled on a plane. I was the kid that was going, oh, man, I can't wait to go see the cream. Oh, did you see what's on the marquee down here? You know, there's uh, Proko Harum. Oh, there's uh, Moby Grape. There's so-and-so. And then all of a sudden, you're there. You're in the concert that night. You're in the, ni- you're in the concert that night that Blood, Sweat, and Tears was a four-piece. Right. You know, or you're you're, you're seeing Buffalo Springfield on the stage at the Hall, during the Hullabaloo. Yeah. You're a guy witnessing history like Zellig or something, right? You're yeah. just a person in place. And then you walk out of there and you walk into the world that's out on the street where all the other, where the counterculture is. Mm. So you're living amongst the kids. You're all the same age. You're all like against the war. Uh, you're traveling. It's this whole atmosphere of, well, I love that. I love, there's just love, love, love everywhere. Everybody's feeling it. You're listening to my interview with Bill King, author of Coming Through the 60s, an American rock and road story. And you're, you're, you're going from coast to coast through this, and you're part of that history, but you're doing it from the ground. Mm. So you're standing, you know, you're standing four o'clock in the morning and, and, and you have no money and you're standing in Greenwich Village and the garbage trucks are coming around. You know, what a sight. Just, yeah. you know, there and you're just you're just jacked you're going oh man day's going to start soon then you see the sun rise you see the vagabond motorcycles come in you know all the guys from brooklyn you know and they're going to spend the day there harassing young women then you're going then you're over in another scene and you're going man is that Jimi hendrix playing a disco how could that happen you know so i mean it's that kind of thing that every time you turn around there was something epic of the times that you didn't know at the times was epic but when you, you know, keeping notes and when you go back to it, you go, you know, that was a, that was a fantastic, you can't repeat that time. Mm-hmm. And that's why I stopped at 69, because I think there's great stuff that relates in the seventies. And then it starts to fade into the cocaine generation, which killed it all off. But uh, that time there were, everybody was emotionally, the, the first love ends, I got to play on those, right? So you're at Griffith Park, you're playing there and you, you see what those first uh, that first level of concerts are like outdoors in a park, and you correlate it then many years later to the Beaches Jazz Festival. Right. But it's where there's a variety of music on the stage. You got a Miles Davis, you got a Charles Lloyd, you got the Grateful Dead, 
you've got this mix of bands and nobody's saying, no, we have to just have this one kind of band. We just got this run job. No, they were all, you know, the staple singers were on the same as with, with a Mahalia Jackson would be on there. So Chuck Berry would be on a stage with a Thelonious Monk. There right. was no separation. It was just about great music, you know? Well, when I first started working in radio, I was just 16 at a very small radio station in Nova Scotia. And our top 40 chart might have uh, a country song, a rock and roll song. Frank Sinatra could sneak in there. There was no, uh, there yes. weren't separate charts for everything. If it was good, if people liked it, it made it on the chart, not one of the charts, the chart. Do you remember uh, when Chum FM came on the air? And we're, we're, we're talking about this week, the passing of Larry Green. Right. Uh, uh, he passed a couple days ago. Larry Green, when he was on, that was the freeform Chum FM. Right. Right. So I got played there, but so did King Sunny A Day and Lighthouse. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then uh, the first Delton John, yep. which was much more progressive stuff and be a sea wind or, or you name the bands, they were all all of these bands that sort of uh, came out of the 60s into the 70s, the early 70s there, there was a mishmash and I never turned the radio off. Mm. You know, I heard Emerson, Lake and Palmer. I went, oh man, there's another great record. Then all of a sudden it got, uh, it went to hit sort of thing, right? Mm. Because, you know, the, 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 the whole thing about FM was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be more album oriented than uh, AM. Let the AM be top 40, but let this be more experimental. But when they figured out the sound quality was so much better on FM, they said, let's go and push AM over to FM, right? But you're, you're absolutely right. It was real progressive listening. It's, it's like, uh, what was the uh, Chome, Chome in Montreal? Chome yeah. in Montreal. Same thing. You know, guys in a house and, and, and I'm there and, and the guys are pulling out uh, all sorts of weird records and stuff. And I'm going, oh, great. Or the early days, I, I remember being with Bob Makowitz, you know, and Mako says, uh, man, have you heard the Charlie Manson album? And I'm like, oh, you're not putting that on the air yard. He said, like, get away with that put on there because it's pretty doggone funny. Well, you could get away with stuff like back, that back then. I get the impression, and you were at both of these scenes, that Greenwich Village and Haight-Ashbury, which were very much uh, uh, happening around the same time, new music, interesting music coming out of both ends, but it, it, it felt different. Was there a difference between East and West? Yeah, it was. Uh, um, boy, uh, Greenwich Village was electrifying mm. for me. Uh, for me, I found it electrifying because every time I walked out on the street, there was that mix of, uh, uh, of Latin music, the psychedelic, there was the, uh, so many kids together, but and so many clubs, right? Club after club after club. So you could play and you could move around. There was this kind of movement. Plus you had all the different ethnic groups coming in from uh, New Jersey, Queens, the young girls, the young guys coming in. And they were Italians, they were Jewish, they were this. And they were part of that cultural, they were art orientated kids. You know what I mean? They were, they had a background in the arts and music. They were going at the best schools in New York City and then hanging out at night. So you had this vibrant scene of young people and of course, of course the local crazies and stuff. And, and it, it was electrifying. When I went to Haight-Ashbury, it was 68 or yeah, 68. So I'm there with Janice and, I, and, I, and I'm thinking the same thing. I'm thinking the same thing as what I saw in New York. And what I just saw was a lot more heroin, mm. was I saw a lot more destitute people. I saw, 
you know, it was kind of like, maybe I caught that a year. You know, it, it made a great scene. It was, it, was a, it was great, but it wasn't the same size of that music scene right. because you didn't have, you know, the rolling jazz clubs that I could, could always go to or see or all these kind of people always on the move there. It was, it was really good, and, I, and I'm sure it worked for California, but California was a whole different vibe than, than New York City. New York City was electrifying all the time. You know what I mean? This one, you had to hunt down things a little right. more. Yeah. Well, in that answer, you mentioned Janice. And that's, of course, yeah. is Janice Joplin. Uh, why did she nickname you Jesus? <laughs> because I didn't do any drugs. <laughs> I didn't drink or do any drugs. I, you know, I was, I, was this, I was this kid out of church, right? And um, we were raised in a strict evangelical home, right? And so... It was it was hard enough just not to be go, going to college the next day after I just passed on college. It was difficult enough with the guilt thing not to show up the next day and and, and have work to do. Yeah. So with 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 the religious thing, you know, it's pounded in your head. Nobody drank in our home. Uh, nobody swore. Nobody did anything like that. So I had that transition time being in big bands in Louisville and in playing in bands, but. I still didn't change who I was. And so there was there was that level of let's not go there kind of thing. So I was kind of like viewing this stuff, uh, clear-headed. And so with Janice, I knew I knew all the stuff I was going to walk into. So I, and I'd, I'd already been around junkies and, and people on the decline. And, and I saw them and I went, oh, that's not me. I don't want any part of that. So with her, it was about, you know, having a great sense of humor because she was there to have fun as much as she was serious about the music. So I could laugh with her and, and get along great with her. And, and I didn't put no pressure or I didn't ask for anything. I didn't, I didn't want anything from her. Right. So we had it off really well. I mean, she just said, Hey, you want to go out tonight? And I go, sure. She go, I'm going to pull a car around. And that was that Mercedes Benz. Right. Well, yeah, it was the and the psychedelic Porsche too, right? Did she not have those? No, it's, like, yeah, it's, it's the Porsche. Yeah, sorry. She, I mean, she was a big star at this point, right? She was, yeah, she was a big star, but she still had like a lot of big stars that you go back, you feel like in your environment you want to be around people who are more like hometown. Mm, right. So when we would go out, and she had places she would go, like country billiards or little bars and in, in the back areas. And she could walk in and there's nobody going to run over her or, or chase her down. And me and her and Brad Campbell, who was from here, who stayed with her to the end, and he was in the last words in Toronto, we just got along famously. And he was a terrific uh, billiards and snooker player. I mean, there's just no way we could ever beat this guy. He grew up doing this. Right? And so the three of us would go around San Francisco and, and get in the games and, and just stay there all night. And, and she said to us, she goes, never let me win. She said, I want to work against you guys on common ground. So never let me win. So we went, okay. And so she beat me a few times, but she could never beat Brad. You're listening to my interview with Bill King, author of Coming Through the 60s, an American rock and road story. And then the other times she would just go and hang out. Well, this is my friend, so-and-so. And I had to go, oh, man, these are some crazy people. You know, so it was, you know, it was just like the same way when we went to uh, meet uh, the Stax people for that Otis Redding, that big Christmas Stacks uh, party, which was just like unbelievable. 
at Jimmy Stewart's home and, 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 and he's playing the old Otis tapes and Otis had passed away like a year or so before. And you've got Carla Thomas, you've got Rufus Thomas, you've got uh, Eddie Floyd, you've got the Barquets, you've got the Booker T and MGs. And she's just like, they just treated her all of us like, oh, but they really treat her growing. We go into the, go into the dining area and we all sit down at the table and some people are going to have a smoke and stuff. And she's talking about the band, how she's excited about it. And she goes, and this is Jesus over here. <laughs> It's just, <laughs> and everybody just started laughing. And she goes, he really is Jesus, but he's got a sense of humor, you know? <laughs> well, you also had to drive the psychedelic horse, which is her famous car that was painted yeah. in a very kind of paisley psychedelic way, because uh, she couldn't uh, use the clutch to get it up the hills in San Francisco, right? She scares to death. Yeah, she scares to death because, you know, we don't, yeah, some of it would just, just get their foot over and and put their foot on the brake because <laughs> you get the clutch in, in san francisco it's hard enough to walk up yeah. you know we would we would take a take a, the trolley over and then we have to walk up to where she lived on noise street and me and brad and roy would get up there and we'd go geez we're just exhausted how can anybody live in this place right and so she would go oh, let's go somewhere so you get in the portion she'd go up the hill and then all of a sudden the horse is going backwards and backwards and backwards. And she'd be hitting the clutch instead of the brake, you know, and you have to stick your foot over and hit the brake for her. And she'd go, oh, okay. And then, of course, you have to start the thing. And it, it was complicated. And you also turned her on to uh, Raise Your Hand, the Eddie Floyd song that became a standard for her. There is a picture. I had this picture. I found it online. Sometimes you can find a picture. It's her sitting in, on Noe Street in the window where there's two chairs that sit in the window with her record player. It's fantastic. And I saw that thing and I went, I sat right there. And she sat right there. And we were putting records on, singles on it. She's looking for tunes, right? And I told her, I says, you got to get Raise Your Hand. And she gets the single. We sit down to put it on and she loses her mind. You know, and... We, she said, arrange it. So I arranged that. And she says, also, do, do, uh, to love somebody, the BG, BG's thing. And I had to think about that. And I said, how do you do this thing, a soul thing? And then we worked through the arrangements. Then we started doing it, just doing it in rehearsals. And then after I went into the army, I saw her on TV performing. I went, I know that, but I can't say nothing to anybody here that I had anything to do with this. Yeah, yeah. Believe it, right? And then a couple of years later, I see she does it with. Uh, Tom Jones and I went one of the best performances by an artist period on TV because just the way it's wrapped up how they played off each other and sang off each other it's just amazing. Linda Ronstadt you say that she was so beautiful that you had trouble even talking to her when you first met her and yet you were her musical director when uh, uh, for part of the time that she had the Stone Ponies at the end of that so she's switching from the Stone Ponies and she's going solo and uh, Herb Cohn was her, her manager at the time. And he managed Frank Zappa and a, a, a few things like this. And he saw me playing piano in Louis Jordan's in, uh, in Greenwich Village. And he came in with uh, some other people with him that night. And at the end of the playing, he goes, uh, you got any issues? I said, what do you mean? He said, do you drink? I said, no. He said, you do drugs? I said, no. He said, you're a great piano player. You ever been a music director? And said, yeah, for so-and-so. And he goes, okay. Come to my office tomorrow. So I went up to the office and said, because look, he says, I talked to Linda and I want you to be her music director. 
And I said, okay. And he says, so here's what you're going to get. You're going to get $50 or something like that. I went, oh, man, this is terrible pay. He said, but once you're out there, you're going to get 150 And I went, I'll go. Right. So me and Lee Underwood, who was a guitar player for Tim Buckley, mm-hmm. at the t- me and him and his girlfriend, we drove across America all the way to, to California together, laughed our butts off, talked music, just had the greatest time and got there. And then I met who, who she had picked for the band. We rehearsed and rehearsed and went over tunes. And then finally she shows up and, and I had my chance to, you know, she came in and went, oh man, she's so beautiful. <laughs> you're, you're 20 years old. What are you going to do? You know, yeah. she's just like unbelievable. And she's an unbelievable singer. So she walks in and they're like, uh, uh, you know, they're, they're the same way I am, you know, it's just young guys, you know? And uh, she sits down to the piano bench and she goes, so who are you? <laughs> I said, I'm Bill. And she goes, okay, so what are we going to do? And I said, well, we've went over some of your tunes. And she goes, okay, you ever written anything yourself? And I said, yeah. And I said, I have this song called Hurtin' World that I recorded and Janice did. And she goes, well, play it. And I played it and she goes, hey, I really like that. And I said, okay, great. So let's do something. So we started rehearsing, went through some tunes. Then we come back another day and do it again, another day. And then it just got quiet. And I went, what's going on here? Well, I didn't know she was fighting with her manager, you know? She wanted out of that contract. She wanted to clean things up. I mean, after Stoneboard, let's clean things up. And so she just said, let's go for a ride. And so so I said, okay. And so she took me all around Hollywood. We went to recording studios. We met the uh, Chambers Brothers and we did this. Then she drives out to Malibu. She goes, I want you to meet some friends out here and do this. And that was about it. You know, then the next thing I know, I see the same band because you know, just a few months later, I'm, I did Janice and then the, Ar- and the Army. So it kind of all like, but you know what the issue was, is that I had a problem with the military and the FBI was in Los Angeles and they knew that I was through family or friends or whoever else, they knew I was with her and they issued a, um, they went to Capitol Records and said, if she's caught in the company of him, she'll be arrested too. And so that ended that quick. You end up. Uh, coming to Canada uh, after you were informed that you were going to be uh, shipped off to Vietnam, you came yep. here uh, with your wife, who now you've been married to for 52 years, Christine. And uh, But you had only been married for a short while. Uh, what was her reaction to you saying, well, you know, listen, I know we've only been together a short while, but now we have to move to Canada and start our lives again. We've been married a few weeks. Yeah. We, we, the orders came while we were married. We had just got married and we're at my parents' house and uh, the envelope came and our soldier came up the front door and delivered this packet. Yeah. And I looked at it and said, you're going to Vietnam, uh, prepare for this in a month. And I went, oh man. So I went back to the army and then my uh, army commander, he just kept throwing gigs at me, right? He goes, you go do this. And it stole two weeks away from me, right? Yeah. But, it, you know, the whole thing came down that, that I was going to go. I reported to Fort Dix with her, but it was the day that 10,000 people stormed Fort Dix and any draft people. And it was just a moment of reckoning because I'd already talked about it, thought about it. I knew I shouldn't do it. Uh, emotionally, I knew it was wrong. I knew the whole thing was wrong. But at the same time, you want to keep your parents, please, your relatives. You don't want to embarrass them. You don't want to put this on the family, you know, this dishonor stuff and all like that. So 
I was willing to do it. You're listening to my interview with Bill King, author of Coming Through the 60s, An American Rock and Road Story. And then while we're there, we got treated like terrible, you know, just got treated terribly. And then it was this last sort of thing where all these returning uh, guys were returning from Vietnam and they were processing as we were processing on the other side. And they come walking around, they all had beards and stuff. And guy looked at me and goes, uh, you're going to Vietnam, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you're an <laughs> what? And they all stood up pointing at me. Go, what an idiot. And I go, oh man, that's not what I want to hear. Yeah. And then I'd already been in the military 10 months. So I, I had experienced a lot, heard a lot and knew a lot by then. And it was just a matter of, you know, they told us to go to the side of the post that we thought we'd be there for a few days and process out. And because of the march, they wanted all the wives gone and everything and immediately go to another side post. And I went and talked to this first lieutenant and he gave us a pass to go to be together for a night, but we couldn't stay there. So we just sort of looked at each other and said, you know, what are we going to do now? And she goes, it's your decision. I said, let's go to Canada. And we just uh, snuck out of there and hitched back to Canada. And here you are. And, uh, and so I love the story about how you arrive here in Canada, you're in Toronto, you go to Long and McQuaid, which for people listening across the country might not know, it's a big time uh, music store. They sell um, uh, instruments and it is a meeting place and gathering place for musicians. If you're looking for gigs, I think back in those days, you'd put an ad up. And so you put an ad up and said, hey, yeah, I worked with Linda Ronstadt and Janis Joplin and sat back and waited for the offers to come in. But yeah, you <laughs> This was something you did in the U.S. and it was effective. Right. Because I went, when I was at the, in L.A., I, w I went to the L.A. Musicians Union and joined and got that little post-six months thing. And they would have the Thursday uh, wall. So you put your name up. And it was like a, a, a buyer's market, right? right? And you stand around. And that's how I got to gig with the candidates. Or I'd stand around. I got this gig with Roy Burns playing behind him. And I went, oh, man, this is so American, man. Yeah. <laughs> I put my name along McQuaid's on the board. I didn't get nothing, nothing, nothing for like, I'm going, what did I do wrong here? And then a couple of years later, some musicians said, oh, you're the guy from the Long McQuaid's board. And I said, yeah. He said, we thought you were just bullshit. And I went, oh, man, welcome. You know, I kind of, because I go, you know, I thought maybe that would carry something, you know. Mm -hmm. it, 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 you know, and it was, it was also a time, too, that, uh, the Canadian scene was much different than the American scene because of how Canadian artists were treated. Mm -hmm. And they were treated poorly by radio. They were treated poorly by media in many ways because it was all this, always this inferior thing. And, and I, I saw that, that um, I, I don't know how you call it, how it, how it all, the arc of that, how it all began to change over time, how long it took. I mean, you had to have a maple uh, music junket you had to have these things where you brought people from the outside in to say hey we got good talent here right you needed to have a stamp that this person was good at what they did they did or, or on the same plane as other people and i got sort of caught up in the crossfire of that because i didn't get it right i went oh no we just we just go do what we do and you know things are what they are but you guys are really struggling here you know and so i didn't understand that at first it reminds me uh when i was reading about that of a friend of mine who moved to the US uh, to look for success and found it down there. And he said, in Canada, he always had the idea that people thought, um, who do you think you are? Whereas in the US, it was, who do you want to be? 
Yeah. And he said, fundamentally, that was the difference and why he didn't feel that he could make a career here and have the kind of career that he wanted to have. You're so right. You know, I mean, we did, we had confidence and, and it was blind confidence because there was, there was always this American thing that, well, you can do whatever you want to do. You can accomplish, accomplish whatever you want to do. So you just go out and you just start doing, right? And I had the same attitude here, you know? And then I see people here sort of cower. Let, let that let the words of that stop them, right? That to think that there was a ceiling, a ceiling to what they could do or achieve. Mm -hmm. And then when you got, I will say this, Holly Cole, I mean, the Ann Murrays were already out there, but it had to go to the other scene. It had to get out of who was, who was the ones that were picked, the Ann Murrays and the so-and-so, because they were perfect for radio and stuff. And then you could see them on Tommy Banks' show and all right. of that. Right. You needed the Holly Cole. You needed an independent artist like that to go out and be popular in Japan, then bring the story back. And then you need to follow that up with uh, 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 Diana Krall, mm. uh, and then a Celine Dion, and uh, Sarah McLaughlin, and then the big players, uh, even more players come in, the Justin Bieber's, the Shawn Mendes, the Drake, until you got to where you have the city that dominates the charts, the weekend, right here in the city, right now. You could just put up and say, hey man, this is the world center of music right here. You know, you can take uh, Taylor Swift out of the thing. Yeah. Feel like that, but you have to look at it here. There, you wouldn't have had the confidence to even create that back then. And everything was like, let's give Neil Young another award. <laughs> but he don't live here. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to Bill King. I hope that you enjoyed his stories as much as I did. Keep in mind, his book, Coming Through the 60s, is kind of a rarity. You can find it. Of course, wherever you buy fine books. But keep in mind, it also has a soundtrack. It's called Mondo Jumbo, and you can find it on Bandcamp and Spotify. And what a perfect way to spend a pandemic afternoon reading his book and then listening to the music at the same time. Man, that sounds nice. My thanks to Bill King for spending the time with us. But my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.